From Share Profits, brought to you from Wales by 30 Yards, this is the Share Profits Radio Show, episode 27, for the 13th of March, 2020. And here's your host, Tom Winifred. It is indeed Tom Winifred. This is indeed the 27th edition of Share Profits Radio, and I am indeed speaking to you from Wales by just 30 yards. Gosh, don't you wish for those days when all we heard about on the news was Brexit? Okay, it was getting pretty boring, but at least Brexit didn't involve mortality rates, discussions of how you should protect yourself, self-isolate, and the dreaded coronavirus. I speak to you uh, in a district which has just had its first case, rather worryingly, someone who hadn't been on a skiing holiday in Italy, in fact, hadn't been abroad, and didn't appear to have been in contact with anyone who'd been abroad. That raises the spectre uh, that there is community-to-community transmission uh, here in the Wrexham district, uh, and things could get an awful lot worse. I was just speaking to my cousin Nicholas, uh, the son of Christopher Booker, who lives in New Delhi. In India, the cases are relatively low. Uh, the hope is that since nearly all of the cases appear to be people who've been in Italy or Iran or China, and there seems to be almost no uh, uh, inter-community transmission, uh, the hope is uh, that things aren't going to get too bad there. Perhaps it's because of the weather. It's now 28 degrees in New Delhi, uh, and there is a hope we don't know if this is true, Uh, that COVID-19 doesn't like warm weather, in which case, uh, hopefully, we'll get some warm weather here in Wales, I'd have thought sometime in August, uh, and things will die down then. Anyhow, it has sent the markets into full panic mode. Uh, Why is that? Well, people are nervous. Valuations were, as I think regular listeners will know, clearly crackers beforehand, So, in a sense, this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Uh, And there has to be a real fear. Of course, there's a real fear. Uh, COVID-19 may kill lots of people. Uh, I was listening to one uh, non-expert suggesting that perhaps four or 500,000 people in the UK alone could die. That seems to me intuitively ludicrous, given that there have only been uh, uh, 4,000 people dying uh, uh, worldwide so far. The idea that 400,000 could die in just the little UK uh, seems to me uh, crackers, but it could happen. Uh, The point is that folks are fearful, uh, and it is already altering consumer behaviour in oh so many ways. Uh, It's altering the behaviour of how businesses work, and this is clearly going to have an impact on global economic growth, Uh, Will the global economy grow at all this year? I suspect uh, that if it achieves any positive growth at all, that will be seen as a result. And that will have a clear impact on corporate earnings. Uh, It will have uh, an impact on corporate cash flows. Cash is king now. If you are any business out there, whatever business activity you are involved in, at the moment, your number one priority is preserving cash. You will be cutting back on your capital expenditure already. You'll be doing everything you can to preserve cash. For some, it'll be too late and they won't survive. And I'm going to come to that. 
uh, in part three of the programme, uh, where I'll be listing a number of companies which I think could well uh, be zeros. Having said that, I am not panicked. The sensible folks uh, who I have spoken to uh, over the past few days uh, are not selling. I mean, if they had shares beforehand, uh, they've taken a beating. They're not necessarily selling. They may be reshaping their portfolio. Uh, they look at some of the stocks they own and they think cheapers. In even a medium case scenario, this one could get horribly uh, go horribly wrong uh, and they're selling, but they're reshaping their portfolio. Uh, the smart money uh, I suspect had plenty of cash at hand already. They perhaps listened to uh, uh, my warnings on Bearcasts and Share Profits Radio, uh, uh, and they were in cash. I personally uh, have a good chunk of my portfolio in cash right now. And the smart money is, I sense, buying selectively. Not buying uh, 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 shitty little companies on the AIM casino, because they will be very vulnerable to sentiment, to the lack of liquidity in the markets, the fact that most people are not buying, to unit trusts, which are uh, uh, facing mammoth redemptions, becoming forced sellers, to people who've got leverage positions uh, and, in order to meet margin calls, become forced sellers of illiquid stocks. For all sorts of reasons, that is not where the value lies. For the sensible long-term investor, uh, I sense is probably buying, uh, in fact, I know, they're buying uh, FTSE 100 blue chips. Not indiscriminately, uh, but buying big names where there is a chunky dividend yield, taking the view, OK, they could fall by another 10%. They could even fall by another 15%. Who knows? It is impossible to call the bottom on any particular market. But on a two- to three-year view, uh, they should be all right, and they should make you decent money, both with the yield and with the fact that once the crisis uh, abates, and remember, markets always move ahead of the crisis. So it could be that corporate earnings for the whole of this year uh, go down or are static, uh, but the markets will, by the midsummer, be looking to what's going to happen in 2021, 2022. And if there's an idea that corporate earnings are going to pick up in uh, uh, next year or the year after, the markets will start to discount that with purchases. So you buy these range of blue chips and you hope that you get a pretty decent uh, a chunky dividend yield now. And you take a two to three year view uh, that the stock will re-rate gradually. And if you've got a yield of 6 or 7%, uh, and you can gain 10 or 20% over two years, well, you're in terms of capital. Uh, well, overall, uh, you're talking about 32% uh, over two years, 16% a year. It's an awful lot better than a bank account. And that is the assumption that they are making. Now, it could be that some of those yields, yeah, you look at them and you think, jeepers, a yield of 10% plus, uh, isn't that telling you that the dividend will be cut? Well, it could be. But oddly, the actual act of cutting a dividend uh, may be a signal that it's, it's a time to buy. I was thinking of this in reference to BP, which I don't believe will cut its dividend, uh, although the yield is pretty chunky now. The yield on Shell is even more chunky. There is a possibility that these companies might cut their dividend. Uh, looking at a chart which uh, young Neil Hume, I suppose he's not so young anymore, but uh, he was young when I knew him. Young Neil Hume of the FT tweeted out, uh, BP needs an oil price 
over the next three years on average of $42 to cover its costs and also the cost of its dividend. If the oil price is anything over $42, BP's dividend should be safe. And that's not at any one point. It's an average over the next two to three years. I'm pretty sure that it will. the oil price will average well over $42. If it stays where it is now, you're going to get an awful lot of overborrowed, uh, 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 high-cost producers, uh, U.S. shale companies, uh, going bust. Uh, uh, production will be taken out of the market. Moreover, the oil majors uh, around the world are, are even, as I speak to you, uh, uh, cancelling exploration spend, uh, and cancelling development projects, or at least postponing them, as they try to preserve cash. And that will mean that production is lower. Not just oil majors, but, but countries are doing this. Uh, the whole industry is responding. That will see production go down at a certain point. Uh, as the global economy starts to recover, demand will go up. The oil price will pick up. For Shell, uh, the number for break-even plus dividends is in the high 40s. So that dividend might be a little bit more suspect. Uh, we shall see. But I, I remind, remember going back to, was it 1992 or 1991, uh, when I was a trainee oil analyst in the city? BP at that time had awful problems, absolutely awful problems. It was run by a man called Bob Horton, who was an A-grade tool, uh, who was widely hated. But he said, I'm going to hold the dividends. And the share price went down and down and down and down. And at a certain point, uh, Horton got the bullet and the dividend was, I think, halved. And at that point, uh, the share price was already discounting the dividend cut. At that point, people saw that there was a new beginning and the share price uh, started to move ahead very, very sharply. In other words, that high yield was discounting a halving of the dividend. And it may well be uh, uh, just possible that, for instance, Shell or BP might halve or reduce the dividend. But that's probably in the price already. Uh, I'm not suggesting you should go out and bet the ranch on a spread bet on BP and Shell going up next week because I don't know what's going to happen to the oil price on a one-week view. And I don't know what's going to happen to the markets. You could have uh, Donald Trump coming out with some more, another completely ridiculous statement uh, which spooks the markets and the whole market sells off by 5% on Monday. You just don't know. But on a two to three, and if that happens, by the way, if, if the FTSE is down by 5%, uh, BP will fall, Shell will fall, unless the oil price has gone through the roof. Ketra is Paribus, they will fall with the market. But on a two to three year view, uh, I would have thought uh, uh, that you would probably uh, look like a bit of a hero if you were starting to invest a bit of the cash that you were sitting on, earning 0%, uh, and ever less in the bank, uh, in selected blue chips. But please, if you do that, you should think about having uh, some diversity in there. Now, I'm not talking about transgender or feminist stocks. Uh, I'm saying a diversity of the portfolio between sectors. So you have four or five, six or seven stocks uh, in different sectors in the market. Uh, and ones where there is a fairly good case that the dividend will at least be held or, 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 or indeed increased. Not ones that are humongously overborrowed and where there is a very real uh, uh, risk that cash flows uh, could be reduced dramatically, not just for the next two or three months. I think the oil price will be higher in three months' time, uh, but for uh, the whole of the year. 
So I think the, the wise money is not panicking, it is buying. As I say, in part three, there, I will come to uh, a, a, a number of stocks where I think that or what, in the current circumstances, there is a very good possibility uh, that they will go to zero. Uh, and uh, uh, if not zero, to pretty close to zero. Uh, uh, because when uh, uh, the tide goes out, you get to see who's swimming with no trunks, and the tide has gone out. This uh, podcast is brought to you free, uh, thanks to the sponsorship of Open Orphan PLC, uh, a company where I own shares, which is, I believe, teetering on the verge of profitability, which has a very strong balance sheet, uh, which is not impacted negatively by covid but actually is a winner. Uh, I will be discussing Open Orphan uh, with uh, its executive chairman, Cathal Friel, uh, in part two of the show, uh, asking him, I hope, uh, some hard questions uh, about the business. There are one or two things that I'm not certain about, uh, uh, although I think uh, he gives a pretty comprehensive route map as to why people investing in the shares uh, will make a pretty good return on their money uh, on a one-year view. I'll let you judge that for yourself. Let's take a short break, and then we'll be back with Cathal. My guest uh, today on this edition of Share Profits Radio is Cathal Friel, who's the executive chairman of Open Orphan which actually sponsors this show. Uh, I should also declare I am a shareholder in Open Orphan. I think the shares are around about 6p, uh, but uh, I have said repeatedly that I expect to be selling at 10p plus uh, before too long. They've held up quite well in the current market, for, uh, as most shares have gone down the pan, uh, for reasons we'll discuss. Cathal, um, before we get on talking about uh, uh, the, how trading is going for your company, um, I have a couple of questions for you just about sort of shared registers and technicalities. Um, firstly, we had an announcement, I think it was Jupiter, which was a shareholder, um, had dumped its shares um, a few weeks ago. Uh, why were they selling? Yeah, Tom, uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, look, we merged Open Orphan, merged HVivo, HVivo was 70% owned by Jupiter, IP Group, Invesco, and the former Woodford Grouping. Um, they were legacy shareholders. They invested $113 million at massively inflated values. It collapsed. Uh, we acquired it for 13, and it came with $2 million in cash. So we basically acquired it for less than 10% Jupiter and their friends put in. It came with, um, my books, 50 or $60 million of assets. And we didn't really pay for them. However, answer your question, why did Jupiter sell? Jupiter made a strategic decision. They wanted out of HVivo, have tried to get out for a year. So the first opportunity when we generated liquidity, they were going, they were selling. We, we produced really good news four or five weeks ago, huge liquidity, and Jupiter sold into that liquidity. Uh, I can now confirm, as far as I'm aware, I can't see them in the share register. Jupiter is gone. However, but why, um, why, if you knew they were unhappy, uh, why is it that you didn't take the opportunity when you were doing that placing at five and a half P, which was oversubscribed, uh, to get them placed out at the same time? Uh, we well, we had conversations, let's say, with all legacy shareholders uh, with, with permission from the takeover panel, and basically, 
the legacy shareholders bought in and assured us, look, we like your idea. You're going to fix this broken company. You're fixing then. And you're going to sell the whole thing before Christmas. Uh, we'll hang in there. Uh, so it was just a case of we didn't have to place them out. Now, I had originally a corporate finance. I had a lurking suspicion. Uh, did I believe them? Did I not? I believed that maybe half of them would stick with us. Uh, there's only four of them. Uh, and Jupiter, being honest, we caught me by surprise. I thought they would hang in for a couple of months and allow us to drive things forward and demonstrate some uh, results. So to answer your question, we did have conversations. Uh, they didn't look to exit as part of that placing. Uh, they said, yeah, we like your idea. You're going to sell the whole thing when you fix it first substantially higher than the merged price. So, yeah, so to answer your question, um, we believe they were going to hang in. Look, where we are, they're gone. Uh, we do have one other shareholder. Um, I don't want to point the finger to them, but uh, I think there'll be news about them today. They're nearly gone. At that point in time, uh, I think we'll have this wholesale selling somewhat under control. Uh, and not point finger, this what you can guess, you might see in RNS later today, one of the three legacy shareholders uh, has been selling extensively and the fantastic news we had on Friday, Monday and Tuesday. But the good news is that that legacy shareholder is close to gone or gone. Then we only have two to deal with. And the plan would be, I, I think, you know, they're more sensible and rational. Uh, and they'll work with us to say, well, one of them, I think, will roll the dice and say, yeah, you guys are going to sell. Uh, they seem to have a strong Chinese interest in you at the moment. So, yeah, get your skates on, sell the company, and we'll sell as part of that. The other legacy shareholder, we'll probably have to try and do a deal with them and place their stock in an orderly manner uh, with maybe a large institution. So I think the good news is the, let's say, the seller who's been dumping for the last two weeks uh, looks like he's nearly gone. And that will hopefully allow us finally, what more good news flows, <coughs> a substantial uptick in our share price. So let's get this straight. There has been something of a disorderly market. We've had two of the founder shareholders of Havivo basically dumping their stock on the market. So when you produce news, which uh, I, in my uh, 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 ignorant and untrained way, thought looked bloody good, uh, and the shares didn't move by much, what's been happening has been these two institutions, well, one institution followed by another, tipping out their stock. Correct. And if you watch your share rise, it's really simple. We issue an RNS, like, Blow the lights out last Friday. It's almost a 10 million, 13 million deal. Uh, it's 10 million. And the share price shoots up 5%. And then at half 10 or 11, our, our seller comes into the market and flattens it. Uh, it's, it looks quite sad. We had a call from Reuters on uh, Monday morning at 5 minutes to 12 saying we're going to run a story in the wire service. Open Orphan is the only share in the whole of Europe, 13,500 shares, that is up. Five minutes later, our friend came into the market and dumped a lot of shares, and we ended the day down marginally. But that would have been a fantastic news story to have the only share in Europe at 12 noon. Was, but again, but look, we don't want to beat them up. Legacy shareholders have their issues. Bear in mind, we did they did put 113 million in. We did acquire that investment for one tenth of that. So look where we are. I'm very happy to now see Jupiter is definitely gone. They're happily away, and. The other one of the four legacy looks like he's nearly gone. And the beauty about it, the other two seem to be a bit more rational uh, and do understand if they, if they play ball with us, rather than selling at what I would say a very low or it's market price, 
if they play ball with us, they could get substantially more by either waiting for the exit later this year or allowing us to place them with one of our Chinese partners in the coming weeks or months. You know, I wanted to pick you up with uh, pick you up on, uh, uh, well, let's pick you up on both of those things. It's all very well saying you're going to place, uh, be able to place out an institution with a Chinese partner who, who clearly is looking to invest in Open Orphan, uh, or indeed to say that you will get a trade sale later in the year. Um, you may not know this, but uh, I, I've been suggesting that I'm going to shag Cheryl Cole uh, at a certain point. There's no proof, however, that I'm going to get lucky with Cheryl Cole. And how do you have evidence that you're going to attract a Chinese investor to take out one of the other legacy shareholders or, or potentially buy more shares uh, or indeed achieve a trade sale at a price that will make us all happy? Yeah, no, look, very good point, Tom. If you re read our RNS on Monday morning, we've said we are in early stage of discussion with potential Chinese pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and that's exactly where you are. You're completely right. We cannot guarantee an exit later this year. Uh, we cannot guarantee we'll get somebody to take out one of our legacy or both our legacy share. However, whatever we do know, we're trying. Uh, the did, 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 I thought the negotiations with the Chinese were about, uh, companies were about them co-funding development of product. You're saying yeah, that more absolutely. is potentially about but the co-funding of that product is only between one and a half and two million. Uh, and as you know, in the current environment, uh, one and a half or two million is not hard to find from Chinese partners. So our plan would be, now again, this is public, there's nothing guaranteed in it. We would hope one of our Chinese partners will co-fund the entire cost of our new coronavirus challenge study model. And a second, maybe the same one, may come and help us, let's say, tidy up uh, our share register. Uh, and that would be that. Now, again, we're saying this is not guaranteed, uh, but we remain uh, reasonably optimistic is probably the word that two things that in the current market uh, that bear in mind HVivo is a wonderful British company. I'm now, I've moved from my office in Dublin to Whitechapel in East London four days a week. I'm ringing from their office here at the moment. Uh, look, it's a world leader. I've said it's a sleeping giant. This is the only place in the world that you can test uh, COVID-19 on live living patients. It dates back to the British government's foresight in 1947 to start the world's first flu testing centre. Uh, testing viruses is banned in Germany, banned in France, banned in Korea, banned in Japan. Most countries in the world, you're not allowed to do this. Britain had the foresight to have this facility. It's highly regulated, it's highly controlled, uh, and being honest with you, it, it pretended it didn't exist for a long time but uh, it, it's certainly it's a good place now to be able to help uh, find a solution to the coronavirus issue that we're all facing. Okay, uh, before we get on to that uh, and I know you're keen to talk about it uh, I have two further questions back to the sort of strategic nature of the business uh, the first is uh, you have done uh, an incredible number of presentations to investors uh, and uh, uh, interviews with the sort of people I'm normally very rude about because they don't ask terribly difficult questions. Um, so my question on the basis of that is, you're behaving like someone like you know David Lenigas, about to pump the stock ahead of a bailout placing. Why are you doing all this? Is it just to mop up these, these legacy shareholders? Look, very good question, Tom. And I'm, as you ask it, I'm sitting scratching my head. And, okay, I'll, I'll, to answer it, I'm a huge fan of Margaret Thatcher, and Margaret Thatcher once said, the busier you are, the lucky you get. 
Um, so we're meeting them because, put it this way, we had 25 million shares traded Monday. That was our friend, almost said who it was, dumping the shares in the market. If I hadn't been doing this, he, that guy would have probably half their share price. So it's a bit like, let's put it this way, it's preempting these, look, they've, they've made a decision, our legacy shareholders and HPV, they want out. So rather than sit back and allow them to damage our share price, and bear in mind, I'm the single largest shareholder. I have two and a half million of my hard-earned cash. Uh, we have a very loyal group. Uh, so rather than sit back, I've decided I would get busy. I was in Manchester the week before last. I'm heading to Birmingham on St. Patrick's Day next week uh, to present at a ShareSock event. I present the ShareSock in London. And that's, look, to allow in, individual investors to say, look, is Cahill full of shit? He might be, or he mightn't be. But let him see I'm busy. Uh, I would say... Well, if, you, if, your if your business plan, Cahill, uh, is to do a trade sale of the whole business before Christmas... And you have said that you are fully funded. You raised five million quid. The business is going to be profitable this year. So you don't need to raise additional funds. What does it matter if um, some uh, clownish fund manager dumps a bit of stock on the market? Hell's teeth. It's a chance for you and me to go and buy some more on the cheap. Um, yeah. Uh, you Thanks know, for that. Totally on driving the actual business forward. No, I think, look, we're driving. We're really busy. We, we're really getting stuck in driving the business forward. Like, there's a fabulous team here. Uh, and so bear in mind, all of these presentations are happening after 7 o'clock in the evening. So that's why I think of Bargain Thatcher. I've been genuinely probably the busiest month and year of my life. Uh, but I just think the prize is big. And the reason, look, I think beauty of a public company, every judge is very sharp price. So if our friend who's been dumping shares, if we didn't have liquidity to pick up that demand, you and I would have a very different conversation. Carl, your share price is down 50%. What the hell are you doing? Uh, then it makes staff uneasy. It allows, it's, it's confidence. Uh, it makes the whole thing more difficult. Uh, so my view is, I don't know, maybe other people, stay busy. Uh, and then not alone, don't wait on being lucky. But let's try and drive a bit of luck into it as well. But stay busy. Well, would you, okay, would you take the view that once this year, Shareholders out of the way, uh, then uh, then there's no obvious seller, and you have uh, 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 the next time you do a presentation to uh, uh, the process at ShareSock, uh, uh, if it generates any buying, um, then um, it would move the share price higher. Correct, and I think look, nothing you would like as much and anybody else. I can't, it won't affect me. I'm locked in for three years, as is all our founders. Three years from last June, so our only exit is a trade sale, but. I would love to have the share price substantially higher. I would love for people can take their profits and more people coming in. I think public companies are a wonderful, purest form of investment. Uh, the share price is public. People can come in. People can get out. Uh, and by keeping liquidity, it's not like Hotel California. And so many small cap aim companies I've invested in, you can check in very easy. You can buy the shares. It's really difficult to check out. I would like this not to be Hotel California. HVivo was one of them. You could buy the shares. You could never get out. So my plan is keep busy, keep liquidity, uh, and keep going in all fronts. And particularly if our share price is down 50, 60, 70%, potential buyers would say, Carl, hmm, something not right about your company. Uh, whereas if our share price is nice and steady, we don't want, and now I'm not going to mention the gentleman's name, we don't want to do a pump and dump. That's not my style. 
uh, I did put uh, Fastnet together. It didn't work. I took 10,000 a year as a salary out of it, but I very quickly converted it to Amrit Pharmaceutical. And Amrit is now a wonderful company. They did 150 million revenues last year. We found a fantastic management team. So I'd like to do the same with Open Orphan, but uh, we've made it clear it's focusing on an early exit in Open Orphan rather than do the Amrit, which is probably now a big, substantial, uh, interesting company. Does that okay. make sense? Yes, definitely. Let's go to the fundamentals. Uh, as you ignore coronavirus for a second, uh, when I made uh, uh, Open Orphan my tip of one of my tips of the year, my assumption was that uh, the combined business with Vivo would generate sales of around about 30 million in the current year uh, and possibly 35 to 40 next year. And that on that basis, it would be profitable. Are you expecting the combined business to be profitable this year? Absolutely. Uh, and look, I'm, as you probably know, I get slapped in the wrists from time to time by our nomad. And I'm sure the nomad's listening. He said, shut up, Carl. But yeah. look, the minute we are profitable, uh, I will let the world know. And, well, why doesn't your nomad get off its arse and publish a research note so the rest of the, uh, and I, if you are listening, Nomad, I don't hold you in any high regard because you, you know, you're just an overpaid pen pusher. Why don't you guys get off your ass and put out a research note? Then every, then Cattle wouldn't have to talk about uh, um, uh, uh, profitability. Everybody would be able to see this in the research note. Tom, and unfortunately, we were talking to a Nomad. He has been chasing me, okay, to help. And we are the one that hasn't. We've held up the research note. And the reason we held up the research note um, we wanted to get our feet under the table in HVivo. Uh, I genuinely didn't really plan on being more or less the, the CEO. Executive chairman is close, but I am more or less the CEO. I didn't want that research note going out until we announced more than one deal. We've announced one last week. As soon as we are comfortable with our profit forecast for this year, you'll see a research note. Research note is probably four to six weeks away, but do understand uh, the implication we, we, that is that there may be more deals announced before then. Was when I, was the, the deal uh, the, which is which you have announced, which is worth at least three and a bit million for this year, but could easily be worth ten million uh, over the current uh, the next eighteen months. Uh, was that deal sort of in the pipeline, in the hopper, uh, uh, as you were putting the merger together? Or has it come out? Look on on the hopper, and it's on page, oh, I think it's page. 14 of our investor presentation on our website. There's 80 million of deals presented to us by HVivo. You and I have been around and most of our investors listening long enough. Do you believe that 80 million? Not a bloody chance. We weren't going to put a look. Uh, but at least of that 80 million, I can put my hand in my heart and say, wow, there's one. We converted this 3.2 million guaranteed for the coming months. There's a 7 million follow-on deal. Uh, not guaranteed, but pretty close to getting there. And that deal could be higher. The view is that this follow-on deal could be up to 10. The beauty about this, it's a joint Venn HVivo deal. And that's what, honestly, I didn't know was going to work. But this has worked with the Venn team in London and with some of the HVivo team across in the Amsterdam and Paris office. So, of that email, no chance. We will absolutely ensure this company is profitable around the turn of this year, turn mean the halfway point. So there's no way we're going to end this year with this company not being profitable. 
that so much. We're comfortable that by by the end of the second quarter, uh, this company will have reached that inflection point as a result of tighter cost control and more importantly, revenue going up. That inflection point where it will be profitable. And that's where I'm going to get slapped in the wrists or whatever. We, we Look, it'll be, we're making it clear. We have to have some way of uh, letting the public know it's profitable. Is that get our interims probably out really quick. Interims have to be, uh, is the 31st of June or 30th of June. Uh, we'll probably rush our interims out pretty quickly within four or five weeks of that. And that's probably the best way to let the world know we have delivered profitability. Um, Good news, fast, bad news is always delayed. Okay, now let's just go back uh, uh, quickly then to this idea of a trade sale. Um, uh, how do people in your particular space, uh, 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 the, the testing space, how do people value businesses? Is it on a PE basis or a sales multiple? No, I and think how look, big do you have the to market would be when we're profitable. Uh, at a PE basis, okay, or a multiple revenue in a trade sale, it would generally, and our view would be, again, I spent 15 years as a trade sale advisor, it, it, it depends on how much of an auction uh, in a trade sale people will pay, uh, depends on what they deem is valuable. My take on a trade sale, we should be able to get two times revenue. Maybe, if we're lucky, three times revenue. I think where we currently are, HVivo is unique, um, and that's where I think we are a world center. It's the only place in the world that you can test COVID-19, uh, basically a version oh, of it. Hang on a second, hang on a second. So, uh, let's just run that back. What is the current market cap at around about 60? We call it around 30 million. Okay. Now, if my forecasts are correct for sales, and you, <clears throat> you haven't commented on that, but you haven't uh, uh, denied me, uh, so I'm going to take that as you might say that I couldn't possibly comment, if that is the case, you're saying that a trade sale would be uh, at between double or treble the current share price. Correct. Uh, uh, Correct. I think, look, we're warning people, this is not 4 or 5x, uh, and as I'm warning my own family, look, uh, the, the current share price, there's 4 or 5, 5 million plus cash in it, uh, where we are, because uh, we raised 5.3. Uh, get it profitable. And provide it. No, Tom, there's no guarantee. We, the one thing we can guarantee, we can make this company profitable. Slash the cost, get more revenue in. We aim to seek a trade sale. Trade sales are never guaranteed. Being honest with you, if I can sell a company that specializes in testing vaccines and antivirals in this current environment, uh, I should you be more... You make it down O'Connell uh, uh, Street. Uh, yes, I, I, I think, look, Tom, and I keep quoting dearest uh, Margaret Thatcher, the busier you get, the, the lucky you can be. And I think at the moment, if somebody like me who spent 15 years selling companies can't sell our own company in the current environment, then uh, there's something bad wrong. Now, that's not guaranteed. Uh, it is unique. Uh, are we lucky or are we just right place, right time? It's probably a bit of both. Uh, more lucky. Okay, I know you're dying to talk about coronavirus, so let's go with just with a, a couple of quick fire questions. Sure. Uh, will Britain in two weeks be where Italy is now? No, uh, and I said the share profits, and again, I'm speaking out of school. I've befriended and brought him back, uh, Professor John Oxford. He's a wonderful gentleman. He's a world-leading expert on SARS, Mars, and guess what? COVID. Oh, uh, 
as SARS, but in the oh. say SARS, uh, is that that was a SARS disease, and then Mars, the Middle Eastern one. Both of them are coronaviruses. Uh, he, the UK government, he was the only person in the license to take in over 10 years to take in the SARS virus and analyze it here in our wonderful laboratories in Whitechapel in East London and HVIVO. John's view, and he says, Cal, you can say it, <laughs> is that, look, nature is going to save us in the UK. Nature is going to save us in Northern Europe. Why? Influenza comes in the winter, leaves in the spring and summer. For some strange reason, it then moves down the road to the Southern Hemisphere and has a go at Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Brazil in their winter, which is strangely our summer. Where does influenza go? It never leaves us. The difference is why it leaves in the spring and summer. Influenza is airborne. It's in the air. Um, it's in the air. And come spring, doors are open. Windows are open, we're walking around, we're moving around, and the viral load in the atmosphere drops substantially. I was supposed to be skiing in Lavinio in northern Italy three weeks ago. I have young kids. I'm a 55-year-old, a 7-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old. That's a gift for being disengaged a few times. But anyway, I cancelled it because Lavinio is wet, sticky, steamy. We've been inside for the whole time. Northern Italy is hit very hard because the coronavirus bus turned up in peak winter time when people are indoors. Why is the coronavirus not hitting Rome? It's warm, it's dry, spring has arrived, doors and windows are open, the viral load inside. And bear in mind, the viral load is the droplets, microscopic droplets in the air. So look, my view is that yes, there's a problem. The bus is arriving in town, all over Britain, Ireland. Coronavirus is here. The good news is it's not hitting our kids. They're completely immune to it. This has never happened before. Influenza really, really hits kids hard. Yes, it's hitting our grandparents hard. For the great uh, majority of the population, uh, influenza, if you get it, you bloody know about it for 80%. 80% of coronavirus victims don't even know they have it. But the difference is there's a small percentage of the coronavirus uh, for the for the coronavirus, there's a small percentage uh, who need intensive care treatment, who need respiratory, who need oxygen. That's what governments are afraid of, uh, and that's why they're freeing up hospital space. However, my friend John Oxford tells me the simplest way to cut down is wash hands, 20 seconds, multiple times, 50% of contamination through hands, social distance, no shaking hands, nudge the elbow, stand back two, three feet, try and avoid hot, steamy, sticky rooms, get the windows open, use the stairs, stop using uh, lifts, we're all in the small room, and literally two, three, four weeks, it will peak, it will arrive, but it'll be nothing like northern Italy because summer, spring is arriving. Now, I could be wrong, but I think it's critical. I've taken my watch off for the first time in my life. Watches catch the virus. Uh, so if people take those precautions called social distancing, the virus will come, but my belief is the virus will go. It doesn't go anywhere that viral load. It will be back again in the autumn and winter, but the benefit is we're currently testing here in HVivo antivirals. That's what you give to people when they've already got the disease, and we're in the process of working with client companies to test vaccines. By the time it comes back this autumn winter, we'll certainly have an antiviral that'll work against it. Swine flu in 2009, Tamiflu owned by Roche, worked very successfully and they found it accidentally. At the moment, it's come so quick, there's no antiviral we know uh, that is, works really well. Give us and everybody a couple of months, we will find an antiviral work. So we've bought time. By the time it rears its ugly head again this winter, 
governments around the world will have antivirals, which is which you give to people who are sick, and there'll be a vaccine, which you can protect them. Normally, it takes a year or two for a vaccine. However, uh, as Obama said, never waste a good crisis. There is a crisis, and governments will pull out the stops. People will pull out the stops. And I'm certain there'll be a vaccine before the winter comes that people will get protection. Does that give a slightly That's more right. optimistic tone to every today? Do you think anyone who's gone to Cheltenham is mad? <laughs> Look, we're going to get it. So uh, it's a case of I was almost saying, let's get it quick and get it over and done with. Uh, I can't really comment. I do think uh, the government, like in Ireland, uh, Professor Oxford got a lot of trouble telling the Irish government two weeks ago they should cancel St. Patrick's Day Parade. Uh, got a lot of flack, and then hey presto, they've cancelled the St. Patrick's Day Parade. I think social distancing, that means, look, we are in a pandemic, and the way you slow it is, I say social distancing, that's no shaking hands, avoid big crowds, don't be in hot, steamy, wet pubs, open the windows, walk lots. So yeah, Cheltenham, I think, probably, uh, it's not my business to comment, but look, it, is that social distancing? No. No. Okay, how do you benefit from this? You, you talk in your releases about how you've got uh, the only facility for isolating people. Um, uh, it looks like you would be able to isolate uh, half the cabinet coming up. Um, uh, it, it, how much money are you making out of that? Uh, look, the, the reason is unique. HVIVO, we picked it up for a song because last year our isolation rooms were 75% empty. Uh, I think you and I know that's not going to happen this year. Uh, those rooms are going to be quite intensively used. Uh, how do we make it? We're a services company, uh, and we are now providing services to any company in the world who wants to rapidly. So, yeah, look, it's going to be a nice, profitable services company. We're going to be unique. Uh, a lot of companies would love to own this facility, and if the price is right, they can have it. And when I mean they have it, they can have the entire whole open orphan group. Don't forget, within the camp, we, look, we're saying we're not spending shareholders' money on developing the coronavirus uh, China study model. That will be funded by our friends, the Chinese company. We also have the lottery ticket. We have the world's only phase two completed, uh, and there was great results on it on Tuesday morning, universal flu vaccine. Two years ago, the world wasn't really interested in universal flu vaccines. Uh, that has changed in recent weeks and months. So that also makes it attractive. So, why have we? Sorry, clarify that for me. I, because I'm diabetic, I get a flu jab every uh, uh, every autumn, and I know I take Joshua along, and he gets one as well. Um, why um, that, that? For anyone who's a new listener, that's my three-year-old son. Uh, so we both get our flu jabs. Why do we need a new flu jab? Yeah, well, Tom, the flu thing. Would you not prefer to take one jab every ten years? and it gives you guaranteed immunity from every known family of influenza. Your flu jab, and I take it every year as well, I get it in boots, uh, and the flu jab we took last year, there was four strains of influenza. Uh, the, at the, on a good year, we have a 50% chance of it working. On a bad year, the flu jab has a 15%. If you had a universal vaccine, it works on T-cells, radically different. The jab you and I took, is a B-cell based, and it's guesswork. Uh, T-cells uh, guarantees immunity. It's a novel, new way. It's the holy grail. And I'm convinced going forward, uh, the large vaccine companies, the governments of the world say, hey, we've got to stop this nonsense of annual flu jabs, guessing which virus it might be. And again, this goes back to corona. Influenza mutates and change, mutates and change. That's why we have to take it every year. 
Corona does not. The coronavirus is very stable and never mutates. That's another bit of good news. So don't listen to anybody who says the corona is going to mutate. It's been around. Our virus we're using is OC43. OC43 means it was discovered in 43. That virus has not changed. So going back to the universal flu vaccine, it's an antiquated model uh, using B cells that are growing in hen eggs. Believe it or not, the jab you got last winter was growing in a hen egg. Uh, not very high tech. Take a T cell based one. Uh, you can take it orally. You can take a puff up the nose. It doesn't have to go in subcutaneous in injection. And uh, once every 10 years. And it guarantees uh, immunity against every. Now, it's just there hadn't been an interest in development. It's novel. So to answer your question, what have we? We've got the only 24-bed quarantine place. We've got Eva, yeah. it's 24 bed quarantine place kind of busy right now? Yep, I'm sitting in it right now. And uh, if you want to come and have a look sometime. No, no, no. Okay, I'll take your word for it. But um, uh, has it got any patients in other than you? Yes, it's full. It's full. Right. And okay. mark my words, it's been full since January, okay? And we yeah. made it very clear last year it was 75% empty, okay? Does that not give some guidance what's happening? So look, to be perfectly on time. The, the, the rates why, are so, cheap. Yeah, what we don't want to be saying, look, we this is a tragedy. We're in uncharted territory. We want to help, but also we're unique. We're a commercial business. We have shareholders, and it's nice to be in a commercial business that a we're helping. We're helping solving a problem. But guess what? If you have a solution that very few people have. Uh, it shouldn't be that hard to get somebody to pay a very large price for it. So, look, being honest, we are in the right place, the right time. Can I, before you say that, I just want to go back on, on the universal flu vaccine. You're in phase two trials, or you completed phase completed. two? Completed. Uh, we announced on Tuesday morning it had stunning results. It was an academic journal. There may be more information uh, coming out over the coming period of that but it was completed finished uh we're getting it ready for phase three phase three we are going to license it out to big pharmaceutical companies two years ago they weren't particularly interested because there's a whole new novel we're changing the business model no more annual flu jabs once every 10 years that does uh shake things up a little bit but i can assure you governments around the world now are looking at universal vaccines one-offs and like the issue of corona, uh, there needs to be a corona universal vaccine as well. Take it once. So you say that you're, uh, are you already talking to people? Because phase three is very expensive. Are you already talking to uh, uh, major farm co's about uh, uh, them funding phase three? We've been talking for two years, okay? And let's say the, the talks is very clear. Legacy HVO shows it hadn't been going particularly well, but myself as a born optimist and uh, read between the lines that environment now has changed uh, suddenly the cinderella industry developing vaccines that people really didn't want to know about uh, everybody wants to know about vaccines projects that were at the bottom of the list are being pulled to the top of the list so it, it, it they should be and i keep warning people don't buy our shares on the back of us having one of the world's only universal flu vaccines that is about to be ready for phase three that's a lottery ticket. If that works, uh, uh, life could change in a positive way for all of us. I understand that. Okay, so uh, uh, when when do you think we might get some sort of trading statement 
Uh, presumably that will be in time for the this broken note, which we're hoping for. Uh, yeah, look, I think the issue of putting two broken companies together rapidly, uh, we, we will be very soon issuing the results from last year from HVIVO. They were shite. Issuing the results from then, not great because with big losses. So it'll basically be legacy write-offs. But you will see the direction of travel from the last year accounts that need to be published in the coming weeks, uh, next month or two. So that will be the next trading statement. Bear in mind, it's legacy. It's a previous year. The real guidance indicator will be A, the broker note. And I say, I'm holding that up because I didn't want a broker note. Guess what? We want to put a broker note out when I'm comfortable. Yes, we have a good chance on delivering these now. So that will be the first real one with broker note. The second one will be the publication of our interims. That's the 30th of June, and we have three months to publish them. If we drag it out to the end, you said, bad news comes slowly, good news comes early. We'll do our best to publish our interims as quick as we can uh, from the end of June. So then we can tell the world, uh, and I won't get slapped in the wrist by nomads, but telling them beforehand, is that our interims have been published, judges on our first half performance of this year. That is brilliant. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, We will speak again uh, uh, very, very shortly. And uh, send my love to uh, your nomad uh, uh, and to ShareSock, uh, 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 they're all uh, fine, uh, upstanding members of the community. Tom, it's a pleasure as always. And let's keep in touch. And uh, uh, I say, let's see how the current situation evolves. But I'm an optimist. I don't think we're in a nifty situation, but we do need to react. We do need to protect ourselves and our loved ones. Okay, keep well in the isolation unit. Speak soon. Uh, Absolutely. Thanks, Tom. Goodbye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Cathal Friel. Uh, the company he runs, Open Orphan, is, of course, the sponsor of this podcast. I am a shareholder. Uh, you can see if he delivers on his business plan uh, how the shares could be uh, almost 15p by the end of this year. Of course, if he delivers, uh, there are great uncertainties. Uh, will he deliver the sales that we expect? Yes, I think that is a given. Could they be greater? Yes, that is possible. Uh, coronavirus is clearly helping him. Uh, but will he ag- agree a trade sale? That's not certain. As the great share promoter Colin Bird uh, used to say every time he did a podcast uh, ramping his shares shortly before replacing, uh, there's the much that can happen between cup and lip. I'm not sure quite what he means, but his point uh, uh, with that analogy about drinking tea uh, is that uh, you can't guarantee that things will happen. Nonetheless, uh, in these troubled times, uh, I'm very happy to be a shareholder of this stock and certainly uh, wouldn't expect to be selling uh, for anything less than 10p and probably for a bit more, good bit more uh, within a few months. When I recorded that uh, part of the podcast yesterday, uh, stocks were falling like there was no tomorrow. The end of the world was in sight. As I speak to you today, uh, on Friday, uh, stocks are roofing it, reclaiming much of the losses of yesterday. That, of course, won't get the coverage in the newspapers uh, that a stock market crash does. Uh, It doesn't tend to be the way. We don't know what will happen to shares on Monday. We don't know what will happen in the battle against coronavirus. We don't know what 
President Trump will say. I rather dread uh, what he will say. Uh, we just do not know what will happen. But we live in volatile and uncertain times. I explained in the first part of this podcast why I think on balance uh, one should take days like yesterday uh, and possibly the next time that stocks fall out of bed as an opportunity to to move some of your cash uh, into selected blue chips. But one must accept the world has changed. And in light of that, there are some companies who will undoubtedly go under. They're ones which were in the past run by crooks. That's always a bad sign. Uh, Which had flaky business models. That's always a problem. Uh, Or which had over leveraged. Uh, That's a problem. Or which have very poor earnings visibility and operational gearing working against them. That is a problem. Over the past 10 years, we've been operating in a bull market. Uh, I commented, I think, on which podcast it was when I did one with my stockbroker, Anthony Laker. Anthony is a bit older than me. He's uh, heading towards 60. And we discussed how few folks operating in the market today uh, have any real experience of a bear market. There's an awful lot who can't remember 2008, 2009, the great financial crisis. Uh, I suspect many of those operating in the market, if not most, can't remember uh, the uh, dot-com bubble and burst in 2001 and what happened after that. Uh, There are very few, Anthony and I uh, are rather unusual in this respect, uh, who can remember the bear market of the early 90s. Uh, let alone the crash of 1987. I was actually working in finance then uh, in a gap year before I went to university. Anthony was working on the floor of the stock exchange. But there are very few of us around. People tend to retire with their millions uh, uh, well before they hit 60. So most folks who were working in 87 simply can't remember what happened then. I suspect there are relatively few industry professionals uh, who can remember uh, the grinding bear market of the early 90s. They don't have that experience. And anyone who came into finance or the world of shares post the great financial crash, uh, the great financial crisis anyone who came into the markets uh, post that era just has lived in a world of easy money, zero interest rates, quantitative easing. And in that environment, if that's all you know, perhaps you thought it made sense uh, to float companies with crackers business plans because there was always going to be some fool who'd buy your stock and promote it. You could always do a podcast with Justin Waite, Justin the Clown, and push the stock higher didn't matter if the business wasn't going to generate a cent of cash. You could always promote the stock. And, of course, uh, you could uh, rely on investors who were thinking, ah, interest rates are more or less nothing. Let's leverage up and borrow to buy shares. And companies which were doing the same, let's borrow billions of dollars uh, to go and buy assets. Well, all those folks are the sort of people, whether they're investors uh, or companies who are now shown Uh, to be swimming with no trunks because the tide has gone out. The world has changed. I think it is highly likely that we will see a recession around the world uh, starting pretty soon. Uh, I see that on Share Profits today, Chris Bailey has done a very good piece on what this means for the banks. 
I think he's perhaps a little bit optimistic. Uh, we could well have some sort of banking crisis, certainly with secondary financial institutions suffering very, very badly. And over in the Eurozone, uh, I think things could be very grim indeed. Uh, the world has changed. In light of that, uh, just for fun, I thought I would list 10 stocks uh, which could go to zero or near as damn it. And they come in various categories. Uh, let's start with two old favourites of this website, uh, Vasarian and Bidstack. In both cases, they have very flaky business models. Uh, Vasarian's been going a lot longer than Bidstack, uh, but after five years in the graphene game, its revenues from graphene are more or less nothing. Uh, Bidstack promised great revenues in its debut year, calendar 2019, but in the end delivered more or less nothing. So they have business models which are, to me, inherently flawed or at least a best case suspect. As a bonus, uh, both of them have management teams uh, who are proven liars. And, and I would suggest that one of the golden rules of investing is if you catch a management team telling porkies, you don't own the shares. Uh, in the case of Bidstack, uh, Lion James Draper, the CEO, told investors that he was going to hit first half profit forecasts. Uh, he didn't. He missed by a country mile. And he knew that he wasn't because that lie came out a couple of months after the period end, or at least six weeks after the period end. So he lied to investors. Uh, Neil Ricketts at Vasarian, well, he's lied about all sorts of things. The US hub uh, selling his shares only to pay for a, a school, which, of course, he hasn't paid a cent to. The lies are legion. Those are two big red flags. Why they come in this category of going to potentially zero or uh, uh, close to it is that both are running out of money. By my calculations, Vasarian is in net debt roundabout now uh, and will exhaust its banking facilities uh, by July. Uh, Bidstack has no banking facilities and it will run out of money by the end of April. Neither of them, uh, for all the red flag reasons uh, uh, raised before, will be able to raise money with institutional investors. Both will be required, uh, reliant on bucket shop funding. And if liquidity in the market dries up completely, and there is every sign that it is drying up completely, uh, 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 bucket shops will be unable to provide material funding. And if they do, it'll be at a horrific discount. In other words, the companies will not be able to raise enough to keep them going for a meaningful period. Uh, they will just postpone the moment of death. For both companies, you face either mega dilution uh, uh, and a postponement of death, because at a certain stage, even the bucket shops say no, or potentially uh, a, a, a zero well before then, because they just cannot raise the money. So those are two to start with. Next up are uh, uh, three in the oil space. Tullow Oil had its results uh, a little bit earlier this week. Uh, and the auditors made it clear that if the oil price stays where it is for any more than a few weeks, the company is in deep, deep, deep doo-doo. Uh, it is already messed up at an operational level. And, you know, these things, past performance does tend to be a guide to the future. Uh, so it's already pre the oil price crash uh, had to reduce its guidance in terms of output and cash flows generated uh, uh, for the coming year. Post the oil price crash, uh, this company will, I put it to you, be in the hands of its bankers. 
uh, if things don't improve on the oil price fronts and improve dramatically. If they don't improve dramatically, it will be in the hands of its bankers because it owes about $2 billion. Uh, it will be in the hands of its bankers, but or maybe it's more, actually, I can't remember, but it's, oh, it's a vast amount of money. Uh, and the bankers will say enough is enough, and a debt for equity swap looks to me to be the only way out. Two tiddlers, uh, Mosman Oil and Gas uh, is a stock that I've followed uh, for an awfully long time. Uh, it shares once 44p at peak ramp. I think they're now 0.6p. Uh, the company has small uh, producing capacity, uh, but it was not generating enough cash even at $50, $60 oil to cover all its overheads, let alone any expiration growth capital. Uh, current oil prices, it's clearly hemorrhaging cash like there's no tomorrow. It's already announced there's a strategic review. Uh, my suggestion is that the only conclusion is to make it a cash shell, except it's got no cash, just liabilities. Uh, it looks to me to be utterly doomed, and it's hard to see how it can be refinanced at all. Uh, I3 Energy, again, I've been a mega bear. Very suspect uh, uh, IPO and funding pre-IPO. I covered it at length at the time. And at that point, I decided that the, the card was marked for the management of this particular company. Uh, well, it's had operational failure. Uh, it needs money. Uh, I very much doubt that it's going to be able to get money in the current climate. It doesn't matter that it's not a producer. So people say, oh, but the oil price doesn't matter. Well, it matters because it hits sentiment with the oil price where it is now. And people who are involved in the oil sector, they've they've done their conquers on Tallow and Premier, even BP and Shell. So those sort of folks who are minded to invest in oil, they've done their conquers across the board. Why on earth? Would they be tempted to throw good money after bad and back a company like this? No, I think I3 uh, Energy uh, could be heading for uh, uh, the cleaners pretty soon. Uh, into, uh, again, we've covered uh, on this website uh, numerous times. Uh, it owns a lot of shopping centres. Well, they were already suffering uh, much reduced traffic even before coronavirus as a result of uh, the British consumer being overborrowed, under-saved, uh, the shift to online, etc., etc. The fundamental value of its assets has been marked down already, uh, but would have been would would have to be marked down considerably more going forward. Meanwhile, of course, uh, shopping centres uh, right now they may be uh, full of people stocking up and buying 500 rolls of loo paper uh, and a uh, thousand tins of baked beans. Uh, but you can imagine that uh, as the days go by over the next few weeks, and coronavirus is going to be a factor, clearly, uh, uh, for weeks, if not two or three months, they're going to be deserted. There's going to be an awful lot of retailers within shopping centres going bust. Uh, and uh, anyone who owns a retail stock, by the way, needs a head examined. Uh, they're going to be going bust. That's going to mean that the, uh, there are voids in these shopping centres. Therefore, their value has to be marked down uh, even more. Into is drowning in debt. It tried to do a one billion fundraise to eat away at that debt pile. That got pulled. Again, debt for equity swap is perhaps the only way out. And I'm not even certain that that's going to work. Into has zero written all over it. 
In terms of the banks, Chris Bailey's view was that the mainstream banks would survive uh, 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 the current uh, uh, macro storm and that uh, uh, you shouldn't be too worried if you had your money in a Barclays current account, which is jolly good news because uh, I do. Uh, and indeed, that probably the banks themselves would survive and come through the other side, uh, albeit battered, uh, but it's surviving. I worry, however, about secondary funding institutions, uh, funding circle, crazy business plan, uh, Metro Bank. In both cases, I think that you're going to find over the next six months that they have lent money to marginal enterprises who were unable to secure funding from proper banks uh, and that those marginal enterprises uh, will be shown to be swimming with no trunks with the tide well and truly out. I would expect both of them to have appalling problems with uh, customers going bust, uh, and that will uh, reflect on both of them. Both of those are potentially uh, zeros. Now, a couple of wild cards to throw into the uh, 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 mix here. Uh, the first is uh, the Woodford Patient Capital Trust, now known as Schroeder's View Public and Private SUP. Uh, the NAV there is uh, reported to be 50p. Uh, the share price is 30p odd, something like that. Uh, but the NAV is entirely in illiquid uh, 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 or indeed private uh, uh, companies, most of which have daft business models. There are a couple uh, which clearly look like they are going uh, to go bust. Uh, Rutherford International, which is 20% of the gross asset value of this fund, 15.5% of the net asset value, could well be a zero. Uh, there are a number of others in there. Now, in the current climate, the chances of these companies being able to refinance look to me to be exceptionally slim. Uh, and they're all cash guzzlers. Uh, so we did do a piece, a report on share profits some time ago, suggesting that the true NAV could easily be as low as 3p. I kind of think that could be optimistic. Uh, gearing at the moment is 22-23%. So you may say there's not really a problem with borrowing. But if you were just to say that, let's say, Rutherford goes to zero, well, bang, suddenly uh, your gearing goes up into the high 30s. You don't need many more, and you're going to find gearing really going through the roof. Uh, I suspect that the sort of companies that uh, 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 the former WPCT is invested in will struggle in the most monumental way to get refinancings. Sure, there is money out there, but I suspect the money that is out there in private equity funds, uh, 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 people like that, they will be looking to buy uh, fundamentally good, profitable businesses which generate cash, etc., but have just been derailed by the coronavirus. They're going to take a different attitude to risk. They're not going to be looking to invest in uh, uh, companies in the uh, je sens revenue stage, uh, companies which are just cash guzzlers and which will remain cash guzzlers for an awfully long time. So I suspect there's going to be massive funding problems for WPCT or SUPP, uh, as it is now known. Massive, massive funding problems, and that's going to see that net asset value absolutely demolished. It could be as low as zero. It could be because of the existence of debt. Why on earth uh, did Neil Woodford think it was appropriate uh, taking debt into a vehicle uh, which was invested entirely? 
in companies which don't generate any revenues or generate trivial revenues and are humongous cash guzzlers and are impossible to liquidate. Madness, madness. Uh, finally, Cineworld. Um, well, we've covered this quite extensively on this website. That A, there have been allegations, no doubt uh, are totally spurious, uh, but by a seemingly respectable bear outfit that its accounts aren't um, quite uh, 100% pucker. That's issue one. Issue two is the fact the company is absolutely drowning in debt. Moreover, it's actually taking on more. It's agreed a deal to buy out a, a huge Canadian chain of cinemas, uh, and that's going to see it taking on even more debt. And there's no way it can wriggle out of that deal. Now, this is coming at a time when, uh, for reasons I'm sure you can work out, I think cinemas are going to be deserted within a couple of weeks. It could be that we go to the stage where uh, the government uh, in various countries just orders cinemas to shut down uh, until the virus uh, threat recedes. Or it could just be market forces. Do you really want to sit in a room with a whole load of other people coughing and sneezing right now? No, me neither. So it doesn't matter uh, what the companies say in terms of new releases. Now, by the way, we've seen the James Bond film postpone uh, its release, uh, uh, Time to Die, very good title in the current climate. I think you'll find that all the other big blockbusters scheduled for a spring and summer release will also defer the release to the time when there are actually people in the theatres. Bottom line, these things are going to be empty. Now, when you have uh, 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 zero revenue coming in, you've still got a whole load of costs. You've got to keep the cinemas clean, etc., uh, and you're drowning in debt. Well, that's a recipe for disaster. This one could go the whole way. Uh, so it, uh, uh, and if it doesn't, you would have thought that a debt for equity swap uh, at a certain stage is something the company's going to have to try and negotiate, all of which is going to be grim for the share price. So I include that uh, in my list. Uh, there is, uh, uh, that's 10 stocks. There's one you can't short, uh, but one that I almost wish I was short of, Eurasia Mining. Remember that? Uh, the shares were suspended on the back of a tweet uh, uh, some six weeks ago. And the tweet suggested that the company had uh, engaged, signed an engagement letter with the big Chinese investment bank, CIBC, to sell its assets. Uh, the company suspended the shares, saying it needed time to clarify social media comments. Well, it doesn't take six weeks to find out whether you signed an engagement letter with a Chinese bank, does it? I'm sure you can find it out much sooner. The silence there is deafening. I wonder if the company has not indeed engaged that. Uh, there are all sorts of rumours still flying around that the directors have tried to resign, the nomads tried to resign, uh, the FCA is crawling all over it. Frankly, it should be crawling all over it because of the social media activity of the non-execs and their gophers like Sith Lord Zach Mir uh, uh, back in the autumn. Uh, uh, all these sort of rumours uh, circulating. As every day goes by and we get no statement from Eurasia, I'm more and more convinced that this one uh, could well be a zero two. Uh, because you can't short it, I haven't included it in my list of 10, uh, but it's a bonus for you. Anyhow, I hope you enjoyed this edition of Share Profits Radio. Uh, if you like to hear more of the sort of stuff that I serve up, I do a daily bear cast over on Share Profits. Uh, it only costs $5.99 a month to subscribe to Share Profits, and you get a daily bear cast from me and uh, about 300 articles and podcasts a month for just $5.99. Surely you can afford that. So I hope you all sign up 
to share profits uh, tomorrow. When you're self-isolating at home over the next few weeks, it'll give you something to do to listen to all my back catalogue of Bearcasts and to read our articles. If you don't, if you're a cheapskate, well, I'll be back with another podcast in a week's time, another edition of Share Profits Radio. Uh, but I hope you're not a cheapskate. Uh, 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 if you're looking for listening and reading material during the self-isolation phase, what could be better than Share Profits? Sign up now. I'll speak to you again either later today if you're uh, uh, sensible uh, or in a week's time if you're a cheapskate. Bye-bye. Can't you see?